My name is Nick Wagner Sr. and I am the founder of the Full Potential Movement. Nick Wagner Sr. here uh, for another episode of the Full Potential Live Show. I even have my shirt on tonight with the logo and everything. And really, uh, we have a fantastic guest tonight. So Kelly Monahan and and Kelly, it is uh, we we had this scheduled since I think I saw you at TEDx Hartford. It was November of 2019. Correct. I saw your awesome TEDx talk, and I asked you to be on my live show, and and you were you know generous enough to say yes, and we planned it for March of 2020, not knowing obviously that we'd be in the middle of the you know this COVID 19 coronavirus global pandemic, but it turns out that the research that you recently uh, recently launched with it, it, your full-time job with Accenture is really timely in, in with what, everything that's going on, which we will, we will dive into. So I really appreciate you making time and joining us for the live show tonight. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm glad that we can be agile ourselves in both our topic and what we're going to be talking about our topic and what we're going to be talking about today. So, and as I mentioned earlier to everyone, so, so Kelly uh, did actually do a TEDx event uh, here in Hartford, Connecticut last year. And we are going to make sure that we link to Kelly's LinkedIn profile if anyone wants to get in touch with Kelly, so you can see her TEDx, uh, her, her TEDx talk. Or uh, sorry, and we're also going to link to the research that we're going to talk about tonight as well from the company Accenture that she works for. So, uh, so I, and I always make sure I let everyone know Kelly. So we're we're live streaming this to both YouTube and LinkedIn tonight, and then we'll share the the final video on YouTube tomorrow, and then we also turn it into a podcast which com comes out on Apple and Google and Spotify. So if you don't want to watch the video, you're more than welcome to just listen. Um, maybe when you need a break from work, because no one has a commute right now, right? So maybe during a break from work. So, uh, so why don't we start with this, Kelly? Why don't you share a little bit about yourself? You know, who 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 are you, uh, and, and what do you, what do you do for a full time job? And then we'll dive in a little bit about your career before we yeah. check out before we yeah. check out some of this awesome research you just published. Sure. Well, thanks, Nick, so much. I appreciate the introduction and um, so glad that we got to run into each other at Hartford. Uh, it's funny for me, real quick, doing the TEDx at Hartford, Connecticut was really full circle. Um, part, of my, part of my career was spent at the Hartford, um, the insurance company. So being able to come back and kind of step into my new shoes and my new career back though in that town uh, where my HR career started was pretty neat. Um, so right now I work full-time at Accenture. I think I have probably one of the best jobs in the world. Um, so I do want to just recognize and, and let everyone know who's listening tonight, tonight that um, in the midst of this crisis, I do feel that I'm speaking from a sense of privilege. Um, in a sense, I have been able to go, you know, re work remotely, um, inconvenienced very minorly um, as our job as Accenture is really a technology company and management consulting company. So we've been operating under this future work uh, principles for quite a few years now, and really hope to spend the next, however long we are in the midst of this crisis, helping individuals, clients, communities, and uh, really our, which Nick, one of the things I loved about you in this show is your tagline, this full potential. Uh, one of the things that brought me over to Accenture, which I do as a researcher, is uh, studying how do we unlock human potential? How do we elevate people alongside of technology in their roles? And so every day I get the opportunity to research, uh, use empirical data to ultimately help our decision makers in business, hopefully make better people decisions um, and really bring data to that conversation. And can you, in, in Kelly, just for, from in Kelly, just for, for my guests that don't know what, like who Accenture is, a little bit about Accenture, you wanted to share a little bit about the company? Yeah, we're one of the largest technology consulting companies in the world. Um, we've got nearly half a million, uh, 500,000 
employees. And um, our mission is to really go out and help clients, communities, not-for-profits, government entities to um, bring the best of their technology and also the best, best of their people. So every day we're actually trying to unlock people's potential at work, whether that's a technology solution, a people solution. Um, and so, yeah, we, we are really a, a management consulting technology company. So, no, so I, I appreciate you sharing that. And I, I like to, I just kind of like, you know, I, sharing a little bit about who you are now, what you do today. But I always like to take everyone on the journey of your career and figure out, like, how on earth did you end up in this research role talking about the future of work and, and you know, how we how we do our jobs. So I'm going to our jobs. So I'm going to guess that when you were a little kid, you didn't want to, you know, be a researcher on the future of work. I'm going to guess that wasn't what you thought you were going to do when you grew up. So I'd love to kind of hear what what, what was it you thought you were going to do when you grew up when you were a little kid? Yeah. Well, Nick, you can't laugh. Um, you know, what I thought I was going to do was I wanted to be a professional soccer player. So okay. I played soccer and started off my freshman year in college playing soccer, um, but quickly realized that was not going to be <laughs> my career path. Um, I, think a lot of kids, I think a lot of kids have that dream and it comes crashing down. <laughs> so I get it. Yeah. But, you know, it was wonderful. It taught me teamwork. It taught me, uh, you know, how to be competitive, but hopefully in a collegial way. It taught me ethics, hard work and practice. So um, I quickly realized uh, sitting in a freshman classroom that um, I was not going to be a full time soccer player. So needed to quickly reshift my priorities and was sitting in a classroom and a professor said, you know, one of the best career paths, one of the best career paths that he thought in this life was to go be a professor. And, um, you know, he said, but it's got a huge barrier of entry. You have to go get a PhD in order to do that. And so, you know, my 18, 19 year old self thought, hey, that doesn't sound too bad. I can, you know, keep doing this college life and uh, really wanted to be a professor, to be honest, uh, from early on. And that was that was freshman year of college. You figured that out. Yeah, once I realized the soccer dream wasn't going to happen. Right, right. <laughs> so what was the expectation? So you, you you mentioned you went to college and, you know, you yeah. you went to undergrad and then got your master's and then got your yeah. PhD. Was it, was it always expected of you growing up that you would go to college? Or was that like a was that a conversation in your house with your parents or was it just like, Kelly, you're going to college? Yeah. Um, you know, I have to say, I think my parents gave um, all I'm the oldest of four. Uh, kids. And I think they gave us a lot of autonomy and decision-making and, and what we wanted to do with our careers and our lives. So I would say college was very much supported. College was very much supported. Um, I'm first-generation college on my mom's side. So I think there was a lot of sense of pride and um, encouragement and push there. And my dad had was actually a, come from Rochester, New York. So I always joke that I'm a Kodak baby. Uh, my dad worked at Kodak and um, was fortunate enough to go to college himself. And so really helped guide me, I think, early on uh, as I decided I was going to shift into business. Um, he was also a business major. Actually, I should say that. I should back up. He was actually an engineer, um, in engineering, but realized, you know, with my skill set, business was probably the better path. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I would say it was highly encouraged and supported, but not mandatory. Yeah, no, I mean, I, th I think it's, I often, you know, talk about that with guests and your experience with your parents really shapes, you know, what you end up doing after high school is what I found. So uh, yes. I'm glad to hear that they were they were supportive. Yeah. So before we before we jump to your dream of being a professor, <laughs> what was the first job that you actually got paid? Job that you actually got paid for when you were in high school, like the first part time job that you actually got a paycheck and had taxes taken out. I always ask this question because I'd love to hear the answer. 
Yeah, this is probably going to be very surprising. Um, so it's funny when I turned, I was going to be turning 16 and wanted a car. And again, I was the oldest of four kids. So I think my parents were a bit motivated to get me a car, but needed income to pay for the gas and insurance. So um, there was a local family dollar going up in town and uh, they needed help, you know, with people hanging up the shelves, stocking, you know, really getting the store in operations. And so that was my very first paycheck was actually from family dollar. Hey, uh, I, I worked uh, in retail all through college. And those of us that work retail really appreciate I think any job you'll ever have, because retail is one of the hardest jobs you'll ever have. It I is so, so difficult. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And I, you know, and I'm so thankful for, you know, my sister right now is actually still, you know, my sister right now is actually still in retail and so thankful for everyone who's still keeping the economy afloat during these days and still going to the stores and, and working. Um, I know it's a huge sacrifice and it's a lot of work. So um, absolutely, I think the retail industry is one of those most understated and overlooked. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I always ask that question. I think you learned so much in that first job and everyone yeah. remembers it, right? It doesn't matter how old you are or how many jobs you've had. You always remember the first job, right? And a lot yes. of people remember their first boss too, that, but that, we'll, we'll leave that story for another day. So, <laughs> so, so you decided your freshman year, you wanted yeah. to become a professor. So is that, is that why you went on the journey of, you know, going to under, going for your undergrad, then going for your master's and then going to the PhD or, or, or is there kind of like some other stops along the way? Yeah, to be honest with you, once I had it set that, you know, I'm going to be a professor, you know, it sounded like a great lifestyle. I quickly realized about myself too. I really had a, too, I really had a, a nagging question of why things worked. Um, so I realized some of my friends were starting to go into more uh, disciplines and really wanting to go deeper into a what or function. And I was just much more curious about, you know, what makes people tick? Why, why is management so hard to get right in the workforce. Um, why is there such a disconnect between what I'm learning in the classroom? And then I go, you know, and I had my first, what I would call my real job, you know, back in my, you know, right after college. And it just was so unfulfilling. And I just was like, this, there's a disconnect. What is going on? So I think even though that freshman class, I was fueled um, to want to be a professor my real world experience is what ultimately led to the passion, the why for me and helping fill this disconnect and this gap. I think so many of us feel about our day jobs. Um, and yet there's this wealth of academic uh, knowledge and literature. And, you know, my, my pipe dream, whether or not it's going to be fulfilled in my lifetime is to help close the gap in my lifetime is to help close the gap between what so many great academics have studied and know what makes work great, but how, how little an actual is in practice. No, I, I think that's well said. So I think to, I guess to, to spoil the, the end of the movie, you did not become a professor. Not yet. Not yet, right? <laughs> right. Yet. But, but, but you absolutely you get an opportunity to do research in your current yes. world. Right? So, so I think a lot of, when, I, when a lot of people think of professors, they think of, hey, you're teaching students in a classroom. But the other big part of being a professor is obviously the research piece, which you're yeah. going to do every day. So, so what, um, so your first, what, what, what would you consider your first real job then? after yeah. after college which one which one was that um i was looking at your linkedin i was going to ask you that my assumption I, I don't know you tell me which one it was so right after college i had so again i'm graduating college right during the midst of the mortgage crisis financial crisis um um you know really hard to get a job i was at the time actually very happy in my role i was still in retail i was actually at best buy um in geek squad and um 
you know, but wanted to, to put my degree to use and got a job. It was a really small boutique advertising company. It was called J Advertising, but it was part of the larger Interpublic group. Um, so we were based in Rochester, New York, and had some pretty big clients. So at the time, at the time, it was Pontiac, GMC, Buick, and uh, Tiger Woods was actually our spokesperson. So oh, wow. um, the world has come a long way since that first job. And and that and that was in that was in the marketing space. So that was which is what you went to undergrad for. Yes, and it's funny though. My career, the one thing that stayed pretty stable, even though you know, if you go on my LinkedIn. I started off in marketing. I was actually in uh, media planning. So I was every day working in Excel. I was actually running a lot of statistics on consumer behavior and, um, you know, realized quickly that, again, as I'm sitting in my office, that, again, as I'm sitting in my office, running all this analytics on, you know, consumer behavior and trying to figure out at the time to inform our media buyers, what's the right advertisement to watch? Um, you know, where do we, what billboard do we want to purchase? You know, what's going to get the biggest motivation from, um, our customers, I'm looking, sitting around at my desk thinking, we got to be doing the same thing on our people here. You know, how do we understand people at work and motivations and taking that same data analytics approach um, that marketers have been doing for decades? So, so I think one interesting thing that we have in common is neither one of us started our careers in HR, right? Um, we, you, you started in marketing. I actually started in IT. And oh. then we both, ended, we both ended up moving to HR. So, uh, and I get this question a lot. How on earth did you make the shift from a marketing role to an HR role? Like, what was the secret? How did you pull that off? Yeah, so that was probably, I'm very thankful. Um, at the time, I was actually at the Hartford. So I moved from Rochester to Philadelphia. So I moved from Rochester to Philadelphia, fast forward a couple of years, and um, was actually finished with my master's and in the midst of completing my PhD. And I met actually with our head of HR uh, at the time and said to her, you know, this is, here's what I'm actually learning in school. Here's my background. Here's what I think I'm, you know, getting a skill set in and I'm pretty good at. I know it's a leap to go from marketing to HR, but at the end of the day, there's so much as we think about consumer experiences and consumer data that translates so well into the HR space. And um, I went in with a bit of a pitch on how, you know, I have some fresh thinking as a result um, of my time in marketing and combining that with my actual education program. Right. So I got a, you know, a lady took a, a chance on me and um, was so thankful, and, you know, and it was a huge awakening to realize what the HR space was actually all about. Um, we can go into that in a second, but um, yeah, I, I mean, I think it was having that, I, I mean, I think it was having that business case of, again, I think one of the most important things as we think about our careers and what I continue to try to do today is, how am I going to add value? You know, with me being there, what's going to be different as a result of the department or the thinking? And ultimately, how am I going to make that person, you know, the head of the department or the boss, their job easier? It's interesting you say that because I think when people think of HR, a lot of people think, you know, they'll ask, oh, you're in HR. So do you recruit people? Do you do payroll or do you fire people? Are usually like the three things you get asked, yeah. right? And I actually think that HR, it's interesting how it's, Obviously, I haven't been in it my whole career, but from talking with people that have been in it for 10, 15, 20, 25 years, it is it is really, I think, shifted quite a bit to yes. being one of the most strategic parts of the organization because every company now realizes that you can't be successful without great talent and HR is the one that are going to help attract the talent, retain the talent and develop the talent. So develop the talent. So it's Absolutely. interesting how, how, how I think the function has really shifted from 
payroll firing and and you know those those more transactional you know type type um, activities that people think of to how strategic it is today so what what um what did you do in your role at the hartford in hr what what because you you weren't doing the research and the future work stuff you're doing today it was more like a, a, a generalist role right yeah, so I was um, HR business partner to actually our CFO. So, you know, the Hartford has their core insurance business based in Hartford, Connecticut, um, but they also have a mutual fund business, which is based out of Radnor, PA. And so I was assigned to the mutual fund business and supporting our CFO. And it was interesting. Um, this is where I think I actually got my hands on real world experience on what the future of work was going to start looking like well before I even knew this is what I was going to go research. One of my very first tasks as an HR generalist and business partner was to fly every other week to fly every other week to um, Minneapolis, Minnesota, where we had a, an office, uh, back office actually operations, and uh, we were installing um, RPA, robotic process automation, and really seeing firsthand one the disruption that was going to cause on the human workforce. And then also, though, the emergence of different roles and different activities and different business needs as a result of the technology. So it was a really trying, you know, HR, I think, carries really the emotional labor of an organization, too, to your point. I mean, they are the ones who are having to make sure the people part work and the people part's the messy part. And so um, I give all my HR colleagues every day, especially during a time like a crisis, because um, at the end of the day, this is a human labor crisis, and HR really is the one, to your point, who has to be the strategic business partner, but also the calm, collective um, voice in the midst of this and making sure that we're bringing compassion to everything that we're doing in business as well. So they carry a lot of hats. They carry a lot of hats. So that, so, so this was kind of the, the awakening for you, this this role. And yeah. the, so how did you make – so I, uh, my next question is how did you make the shift from – that role at the Hartford in in more of like a just generalist HR business partner role to this role at, at Deloitte where yeah. you were actually doing the future of work. So that was, yeah. you, know, you were actually doing research on the future of work, which is the topic we'll eventually get to after we go through your career. Yeah. So it, it was really neat. The one thing I have to say, and I can't say enough positive about the Hartford, um, as I was getting my PhD and doing my dissertation, they allowed me um, access to their workforce population and allowing me to do real world work research while on the job. So I was able to quickly Very take cool. a job in HR and then also really have it be an extension of my research that I was doing while in the PhD program and really trying to understand what is it, you know, why are some people get up and come to work and, and come to work and, you know, what we call in the OB space, you know, organizational citizenship behaviors, but they're the ones going, you know, going above and beyond each day. And other times, you know, in HR, we call them our study eddies. You know, why are sometimes you have people that um, come in and just, you know, there for the paycheck and then others who, you know, maybe engage in some deviant behavior. So at that time, I was really already starting to research and apply HR at, at the same time for about two years, which I think really accelerated my own understanding of the future of work into my empathy towards the workforce leaders um, and, and all of that. So when I completed my PhD program, um, there were, Deloitte was actually actively uh, recruiting. Uh, they were building up a, a research center focused on human issues. So you'll see in a lot of consulting companies, um, they've all of them have some sort of research hub, right? Like a little, little, little mini academia uh, within these consulting companies that create thought leadership, and a lot of them have over a lot of them have over rotated on technology or economics or 
know, the, what we like to call the harder science of business. And all of a sudden, the people issues are emerging right after the 07 08 crisis, um, more and more. And um, I was recruited right after my PhD program and took the job at Deloitte. And what was just, just to kind of tell us together, what was your dissertation on for your PhD? Yeah, so it was all about personal responsibility. So, you know, does personal responsibility, is that an individual difference personality type trait, or is that something that we can change within our culture and in our environment in order to have people feel as if they have more psychological ownership or more attachment to the organization? Um, and within my research, I cannot generalize the findings because um, it was a pretty small sample size, but it ended up becoming much more around an individual difference. And something we might want to consider hiring uh, for and even, you know, selecting leaders based on that, as opposed to, you know, trying to do all these different um, environmental, these different um, environmental factors, uh, cultural things like ping pong tables and beer kegs um, and some companies to try to engage the workforce. So, so then I think to, to kind of summarize, it was your, your work within your PhD program, the work at the Hartford you know, and it kind of culminated in, in your desire or your passion to move to this future of work type yeah. role at Deloitte. Yeah. Absolutely. And they were actively recruiting and it just seemed like a very good fit. Everything um, came together. It did. Because you know what? There's not that many PhDs who study people. <laughs> and, right. um, you know, and again, I really was, I, it was between Deloitte and actually going to be, become a full-time professor. But the one thing I realized is, you know, if I'm going to go and, and teach one day, I better do it. You know, I better have the experience. And yeah. right now, the business world in particular is at such a crossroads. I can't think of a better time to be a talent researcher, but also bear the responsibility of what that means. Um, means. Um, what I realized quickly on in my research is that people, studying people become self-fulfilling. So if we go tell people to go create open office spaces, guess what happens? That becomes the latest trend in management fad. Um, and so when I realized that 90% of management management theories that are published, you know, in the Harvard Business Reviews and stuff like that end up be, being proven to be maybe not such a great idea a decade later, um, I wanted to add a voice to the conversation and make sure when we make decisions around people at work, um, that we're doing that with, you know, evidence and um, doing it with a scientific approach. And um, anyways, that's, that's my goal and passion of why I do what I do today. So what does, for, for those listening, when, when we talk about the future of work, like how do you, how do, how do you and that's you guys in that space define that? What does that mean? That is the million dollar question. Cause all of a sudden, you know, four to five years ago, when we started really coming up with this construct, the future of work, I don't think we realized it was going to become such a buzzword and it's going to become such a buzzword and headline. Um, but really how I think about it as a researcher, and I think how Accenture thinks about it today is we try to distill it into a simple message, is we know technology is accelerating at a pace much, much faster than individuals or even organizations can keep up with. So we do, technology has always disrupted the workplace, but it's doing so in a much more disruptive way. It's accelerating much faster. So the question is, how do we redesign work so that we unlock people's potential alongside these technologies? So the future of work is all about redesigning jobs, really looking at that human element at work, um, knowing that technology, artificial intelligence, machine learning, robotic process automation is coming and it's not going to slow down. It's going to cause um, much disruption to all types of workers. And I think the one thing I would just say as we think about the future of work, it already hit the manufacturing industry, you know, back in the 80s. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because it was blue collared work, I don't think it got the attention. I don't think it got the attention that it deserved. 
Um, and so again, today we're seeing that same disruption now, maybe amongst more white collar professions. And I think it's becoming much more visible um, as a construct. No, I think, I think that's well said. I mean, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get into your research a little bit, but you know, we've seen, you know, we're, we're, we're as for those that don't follow, we're in the fourth industrial revolution. So we've seen things like this happen before, right? When, you know, when we went from agricultural society to, you know, the industrial society, that was a big shift, right? And then we went to, we had the whole internet shift. So there, it, we've had things that happen to your point before, but this seems to just be impacting almost every industry, which is, I think, the, the big difference. Uh, where yeah. in the past, to your point, it was more around, you know, manufacturing specifically or or previously agriculture, right? So uh, so what is, um, and then before we jump into the research, what does, like, what does your typical day look like at Accenture as a lead talent researcher, as a lead talent researcher? Is every day a little bit different? Is is a lot of it talking to people and doing interviews? Like what, what do you, what is, what, what does it look like uh, on a day-to-day -day basis? So a lot of variety. This past week has been much more uh, disruptive than usual, obviously, with everything that's going on. Um, but a typical day is we do a lot of, we do, um, as a researcher, I do mixed methods research. So I do both qualitative interviews, whether that's with the workforce. Um, a lot of times, you know, I, I feel very privileged and blessed. We actually get to go and interview CEOs, CHROs, board of directors. Um, so the people making the decisions every day at the top of the business. And then we do a lot of survey data. So we try to get into, you know, how do people feel about work? What is their perceptions? What are they thinking? Um, we get into some ethical research as well, looking at surveys. Um, so it's both. It's a combination of looking at actual survey data. Uh, we also have an opportunity. I work with a lot of brilliant economists. Accenture Research has almost 400 researchers, all with different researchers, all with different um, expertise. So I get to look, work with a lot of economic data as well. And when you bring all that together, the qualitative storytelling, the interviews, what workers feel and how they think through survey data, and then the economic data, it really begins to paint a picture. Um, oftentimes of complexity, there's no simple answer here, um, but allows me to really have a lot of variety in my job every day on what I'm doing. So I, I, I get a sense that you like data just from our conversations. But I what, do. what do you what do you like better? Do you like going through survey data, or do you like the actual interviews with 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 the actual people? Like what uh what 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 do you get more excited to work on? So I would say when I'm working with actual data, I feel like it's trying to find a um, needle in a haystack. You know, so it feels much more of a challenge. But I often don't have the full story, or it's a very sterile story. Um, right. When I'm able to actually go out and speak with workers or executives, speak with workers or executives, the whole picture, you know, it's kind of like a puzzle piece, you know, yeah. every day I'm, I'm finding a different piece of the puzzle. So my natural bias tends to be a bit more towards, I was trained in quantitative research methods, um, but that can only go so far. And I think um, as we'll get into the research too, storytelling is becoming so important, um, especially during times of crises and really people get turned off by all the data that's out there and stats is not the right time to go out with that. So I'm, I'm more and more appreciating the art of storytelling and, and doing so with interviews. So I'm still always going to be a bit biased towards the quantitative data, but um, really starting to fall much more uh, in love with qualitative research and stories and, and really pulling more towards the heart of business as opposed to just the mind. Yeah, I, th I think I think the data is usually I th the data is obviously important. I think if you have the right stories, it can it can back up the data and tell the story of the data, right? Which is, yes. I think, how you married together. So, so we're gonna. I'm gonna do something fancy, and I'm gonna share my screen. Fancy, and I'm gonna share my screen and share your research at the same time 
that we are uh, that we are live. So um, again, amazing amazing technology here. We'll, I'll put this up here. <laughs> so we, so there we go. All right. So we've got we've got the research up at the yes. same time. Um, so what I want to why don't you walk us through Kelly? So and, and again, we'll we'll put this link for everyone in yeah. the show notes so people can go check this out later. But this is the research. Literally, you guys just published it Friday yeah. night, correct? It's been out. I mean, less than 48 hours. <laughs> so, and and the name of it, you know, for those that are uh, be listening on the podcast, the name is Human Resilience, What Your People Need During COVID-19. So like during the current crisis that we're in right now. So again, I, I thank you for uh, making the time uh, during this insanely busy week to still come on and, and share this with everyone. But why don't we, why don't we get into this? So tell us a little bit about like what... Tell us a little bit about like what is what is the research you, you guys put together and maybe some some general points that you want to share with us. Yeah. So the one thing I would say, you know, again, as a researcher, I think this research applies to anyone and everyone. So a couple months ago, again, I came to Accenture wanting to understand, based on what Accenture is going after right now, how do we unlock human potential? What is it that makes workers tick? What is it that makes organizations work? What is it that makes work meaningful? And, you know, and those you know, I know you were there at the TED Talk, you know, how do we bring a sense of dignity back into what we do? And so we already had this research planned. We went out to about 16,000 global workers. And what we did is we tried to represent the general population. So it's a mix of people with no high school education, um, you know, in the manufacturing industry or in high tech industry, retail, chemicals, it's across the board. We represent within this data set, 15 industries and 10 geographies. And really what we were trying to get at to, what are those universal get to, what are those universal human needs, regardless if we're in crisis or not, what is it that we need from work? But then as we started researching, you know, obviously most recently within the last two weeks, what we realized is our findings are just amplified during times of crisis. And so what we wanted to do is really just simplify as much as we can this very complex data set we went and collected. And taking Maisel's hierarchy of needs, which many people are familiar with, we found those same Three basic needs, you know, Maisel has five or six, but we simplified them down into three right here, which is, you know, during times of crisis or really during any time, you have physical needs. You have to be feel safe. You have to feel secure in your job. You know, so this is going to include, you know, the financial, being employable, um, and those within different who are not necessarily have the luxury of sitting in an office every day actually are in harm's way, making sure that you're physically safe. I mean, as part of this, too, in our research, we wanted to make sure stress is becoming so um, amped up these days. And so what are these days? And so what is it that minimizes that state of stress from a physical sense? As you move up the pyramid, we know that we have mental needs, emotional needs. We need to be well psychologically. And this is where that human resilience comes in. I think a lot of times, you know, one of the things that we were talking about as a research team is what we're trying to essentially capture is the human spirit at work. So how well are you emotionally, mentally? And that's what we measured here. And then lastly, the third thing, and this is something probably where I spend most of my time as a researcher, you know, and Brene Brown obviously famously said it best, is we are wired for connection. So as people, we have relational needs. And COVID-19 um, obviously puts a big strain on this as yeah, we all quarantine and isolated. So that sense of belonging, how can organizations, how can workers feel that sense of belonging and feel relationally well in the midst of this? So those are the three basic human needs that we distilled the research down to and wanted to understand what are the precise leadership actions that leaders can take that leaders can take today 
you don't even have to be a leader. This is like a human to human uh, connection here as well. Um, just as we go to work each day, how do we better meet each other's physical, mental, and relational needs as they're um, obviously amplified during this time of crisis? Well, it, and it's interesting. I think you bring up a good point, and, it, and it's it's interesting. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier when we were talking, like I don't usually take questions during these live shows, but I have all these people asking questions. So I'll leave some in that our okay. guests are asking right. while, uh, while we're talking. The, the physical, mental, and relation, relational needs, you know, this could be something that you need from your business. This could be something that you need uh, from your parents if you're a kid. This could be something you need from your government, right? Your, your local yeah. government, or your state government, or your federal government. So I think it, it really is, uh, it does kind of cut across all different industries and, and just, you know, parts of life. So what, what, when you guys went through this and you put this together, yeah. when you talk about, when you talk about specifically COVID-19 and what's going on right yeah. now, which, which part of this do you think, do you think all of it's currently affected by the current crisis? Or do you think the relational needs is really what's kind of being amplified the most? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I hope we actually have some, that's a great question. Like I hope, and I hope we have some uh, research that we're planning on releasing over the next several weeks, um, you know, to address this. I think it actually varies depending on the context you work in. So right. one thing we've been really careful at Accenture as people researchers is making sure that context matters. So my, my current needs right now might be much more relational because again, I have the luxury of working from home. I work for a technology company. You're still employed. You're still getting paid. Exactly. Yeah. My physical needs right. are being met. You know, I'm sure right now my mental needs, you know, that resilience it is still going to be trying as the weeks go on and we continue to be quarantined and isolated. But for the most part, I'm going to be at the upper end of the pyramid as I think about myself. When I think about my colleagues and my friends who are having to go out into the medical communities, hospitals right now, who are going out into grocery stores to make sure the food supply and the supply chain is maintained. Uh, when I think about the workers who are still delivering packages, you know, I think for that, the physical needs are so important that we make sure we get right as a community and as customers, um, as well as businesses. So I think it really depends where you are. And I think the one thing we wanted to lead with with this research was empathy, that one side of the triangle isn't higher or, or better than another. But for those who are in physical harm or don't have that physical safety right now, we have to make sure as citizens and as human beings, we're helping each other, human beings, we're helping each other maintain that sense of physical need as much as possible. No, I, I think that's well said. And and you, you and I, are, we, we were talking earlier, we're kind of in the same situation where we're, we're blessed enough where we're able to work, continue to work remotely, continue to get paid. And I think that's why, you know, for those of us that do have that luxury, like the, we give back, like what we're doing right now, right? So having you on to talk about this, right? And then and then sharing this with all these different organizations that might benefit from the, the things we're going to, we're about to talk through, right? So, um, or, or something as simple as, you know, I was talking about this with a friend earlier, going out and getting takeout from a local restaurant or your favorite local restaurant to make sure that you try to help, you know, keep the economy going. So, uh, yes. so I think that's a really good point. So yeah. why don't we jump, why don't we jump into some of those? Cause obviously we're not going to have time to go through all of your research. Sure, yeah. There is a lot of it, but we'll, we'll yeah. link to it for everyone. You, you, one of the, the cool things you, that, that the team, your team, that, that the team, your team put together was 10 things the C-suite can do right now. We were talking that, this really, you don't have to be a C-suite executive of a Fortune 500 company to benefit from this. Like you said earlier, you could be running a nonprofit. You could be running a, a startup, a small size business, a mid-sized business. This really, I think, this will resonate with a lot of different people. Yeah. So you want to hit on a couple of these things that you, you guys 
you know, identified that people can lead people, lead, people leading can work on right now to kind of help with the situation? Yeah, I think so. And again, I can give you a, maybe a, even a little bit more than what, what's on the paper there as um, researching this. The, there's two things that leaders and as individuals, we have to get right if we're going to meet every single one of those needs, physical, uh, mental, as well as relational. Within the research, I tested over 20 different actual leadership behaviors uh, we can do to in, in, wanted to determine what's the one that's going to hit, you know, move the needle here the most. Two things emerged. The number one thing, and, I, and it's funny, I'm seeing some of this emerge, but not as much, I think, um, especially looking at social media uh, feeds, is we have to treat each other with compassion and care right now. One of the things I read, you know, in a research article that I think is so profound, and I'd love the audience to think about this, and as a researcher I'm thinking about is, it's really obvious. So when you think about um, the law profession, there's there's a the saying that goes, law is to justice as medicine is to health, as medicine is to health, as business is to what? And so often that your profits, you know, or money. And I think during times like this, we've got to reframe that narrative. And, you know, again, it doesn't, any organization doesn't necessarily have to be business, but really reconnecting. At the end of the day, business is in business to express care and compassion for people through whatever service or product they're offering. So we've got to get back to that original why. Um, and so that's one of the things that we call businesses and leaders today. But that, again, that transcends just leaders. That's all of us as humanity. And the second thing is, you know, what people are looking for during this time is a sense of confidence in someone's capabilities to navigate this complexity. You know, so do I trust, you know, this all comes down to trust. Do I trust that you're going to mm -hmm. lead me in that direction um, that's going to make me stronger or better or emerge from this crisis? Okay. And so if there's two things we can do today, it's all about compassion and concern for people. And second, secondarily, building up that confidence and capabilities to navigate this complexity, navigate this complexity. So those, those are the two things, those, that list of 10 that we um, came up with really then helps provide some action items. So a couple of the things that I love, you know, hierarchy be damned. Right now, this is not the time to be leading with authority or hierarchy. Um, it's a time to be doing a lot more listening. Um, one of the best practices we found of organizations, regardless of size, small business, not, you know, government, uh, large businesses is being able to actually give decision-making rights to those closest to the chaos. So that's often your frontline staff. Those are often, you know, your frontline workers, making sure that those people have full decision autonomy is so important. This is not, again, not the time to be evoking hierarchy or power or ego during this time. Um, some of the other things we talk about is, you know, again, this is hard for me as a researcher because I want to go back to the data, but this is not the time to be putting up PowerPoints and frequency numbers and data. Uh, this is really a time to be telling stories and, and really evoking the heart of what we're doing and who we are, of what we're doing and who we are and how we're operating. So trying to minimize, you know, the PowerPoint, the meetings, and, and really getting into the heart of that. And then the last thing I'll emphasize here that I thought was a really important practice that our leaders came up with was stop the non-essentials. You know, there's so much in business. We've had the luxury of operating out of the decade of abundance that we've picked up a lot of um, activities that may be not necessary. And so really taking a hard look and understanding what's essential, what's not es essential, and really being able to free up your people right now. You know, they're balancing an enormous amount of work, home life. People have kids who, you know, are out of classrooms and out of school. How do we free up some of that capacity that they have that they were giving to tasks that just are not essential during this time and making a pretty hard line on what that looks like? So. Um, you know, those are some examples uh, from the research. Obviously, there's a lot more there, but just a few that I highlight in this conversation today. And and again, I think those uh, I think those will resonate with 
no matter what size business you're in, uh, what size business you're in, uh, or if you're in a like a like you like you mentioned a, a local estate or a federal government agency, I think a lot of this is really going to resonate with everything that's going on right now. Um, yes. So so a couple a couple uh, so again thank you and, and we'll you know for those of you that are that are watching or listening uh, check out the um, check out our, our show description afterwards and we'll make sure we we link to this specific. Uh, you know this specific research page so you can check out a lot more about what kelly's specifically talking about because there is a lot more than we we have to to, to share on our show tonight but um i think that was a great i think a kind of, of a great preview so what um what um when we when you talk about the future of work right because obviously you mentioned and, and it's funny i was thinking you almost need a dictionary when you rattled off for people well rpa and machine <laughs> learning and ai and you know all these different you know all these different uh the technologies and, and you know trends that we're seeing around the future of work. How do you think this specific crisis of COVID nineteen is going to either accelerate some of these trends or change the way we work? Because I use a perfect example. So, and I think a lot of people know I work for for Cigna, the global health services company, and we sure. we've embraced remote work for I can't tell you how long. Like we we have a lot of people that work at home full time or part time. But you, you and I probably both have friends that work for a company that are like, nope, you can't work at home. We don't, we don't offer that. All of a sudden, that has been thrown out the window, and every company is letting people work from home. So that, I think that's an example of how this might be adjusting the future of work. But I want to kind of hear adjusting the future of work. But I want to kind of hear from you, the expert. What are other things that you're thinking of how this is going to change the future of work? Yeah. So it, I think two two trends I would point out right now as I think about the future of work that I think are going to be dramatically accelerated because of this current crisis. Uh, one that you just mentioned is the integration of technology and the, the mobility that we have to do our job. Um, so that's going to cause a downstream impact with a lot of work redesign policies. A lot of organizations today are not set up to become a fully digital company um, or allow, you know, take place of the technology that is available for workers to have a lot more autonomy, to be remote, to be flexible. Um, so I think that's going to cause a pretty big, pretty big impact, especially for HR, um, who I think are going to be at the forefront of uh, leading that work redesign. The second thing that I think was already beginning to emerge that I think is going to be amplified during this time is businesses, um, you know, over 180 CEOs recently signed what was a business roundtable saying that the purpose of business must be purpose of business must be much more about stakeholders than the shareholders. I think during that, during this crisis, um, that is going to continue to come to the forefront. How can organizational leaders, you know, when we look at the various trust index that are out there, businesses are actually emerging at, at the very top um, of that list of where citizens are looking to for support and guidance. And, and so I think businesses have, are at this crossroad and have a really big opportunity to step into the stakeholder approach of meeting local communities of better servicing their customers, their supply chain, their employees. And this is a time that I think we're going to see that accelerated um, based on the crisis. So I'm really hopeful. I actually have a lot of hope today that we're going to see the business community step up in profound ways. And as a result of that, I think customers in the workforce is going to continue to demand more of, of businesses and, and look to see them take on a much more elevated role in society. So I think the combination of the workforce being untethered from that, you know, nine to five, but nine to five, butts and seats um, is really going to be a very old fashioned notion uh, very shortly. And the role that businesses play um, in broader society, I think is going to continue to come to the forefront. Yeah. And I think the the second, the second thing you mentioned where businesses are doing more than just, you know, 
focusing on on shareholders and profits. I think just in the past week, you saw how many um, private entities stepped up to yeah. say, hey, federal government, we will help with this or we will help with this or we will help with this because they they know to your point, it's 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 good for the country. It's good for their business. It's, it's just good for humanity. So I think I think, you know, I think we've seen a lot of examples of that I think we'll continue to see them. So I, I, I agree with you completely. Yeah. So, so why don't we do it? Well, we'll, uh, we'll do a rapid, rapid uh, fire session to close this out. Um, so I'll, I'll ask you a couple questions and we'll just have you give short, quick answers. And okay. see what you think? So uh, favorite class in college and you went to three college and you went to three different, you got three different degrees. So I don't know how you're going to sort through all of them, but what was your favorite class? My favorite, you know, what? actually my favorite class in college was my undergrad ethics and business. Okay. Well, all the way back. You're going back to undergrad. Okay. It was the time, you know, right after Enron and, you know, all these decisions is when I realized like, oh my God, this is very complex. There is no right or wrong. All right. Um, biggest accomplishment of your career so far? You know, Nick, I have to say, I think so far as the TEDx talk, that was a, a pretty big personal and professional accomplishment. And um, Accenture was so supportive and um, really been thrilled with some of the, the outcomes of that. So it was the TEDx uh, for me right now. Which you did, you it was very well done. So kudos to you on that. I, I I dream one day to be on a on a TEDx stage. So we'll see oh, how that goes. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, how about biggest failure of your career so far? Because I feel I always ask that question. People are like, why are you going to bring that up? Because I think you learn so much from those failures. That's why I always much from those failures. That's why I always ask that. Yeah, I, it's funny. I actually probably have um, more than enough in that Rolodex, but. Uh, biggest failure actually was when I was in my HR job, um, I was the lead HR person on having to shut down an office. And so there's about 300 people that we had to um, either reassign or um, unfortunately lay off that day. And I had miscalculated the severance package. I was under so much emotional stress and um, really just, you know, it was a really difficult situation, probably the worst day of my career. And um, making a financial error that impacted so many people. Obviously, we were able to course correct and everyone was paid right and all of that. But I think for me, I learned, um, you know, the emotion, again, the emotional labor, the empathy um, of HR professionals who are under a tremendous amount of stress and having to um, be responsible for the, you know, the, the table stakes of work uh, is really difficult. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's, and, and, yeah. I mean, and, and it's, and, and I think what a lot of people don't realize is, or maybe they do, but it's, you know, we take the job, us in HR take it very seriously because we affect so many people's lives so, so, so immensely that it really, it really is a challenge at times for us. So, yes, absolutely. Um, so again, thank you so much for making time. This, this is a fantastic conversation. I always close with the same question I ask every guest. What is your one piece of advice for my listeners that has helped you reach your full potential so far in your career that you would want to share with everyone? Yeah. I would say as much as possible. And again, I'm going to come from a bit of a bias being in business. Um, but a lot of times, you know, business is worried for competition and self-interest. And my biggest advice, if we're going to unlock full potential, is to ensure that every day I'm making those around me better. And so I think that's the right mindset as we think through the future of work. Uh, one of the other things I say is, you know, social capital, our ability to work together is going to become so much more important. Um, so as much as we can check the ego at the door and really get up each door and really get up each day, figuring out how can we make others around us better. And I think that actually leads to such better business results and your own individual success as a result of that. Um, but it's the collaborative over the individual is my advice. And, even, and in times of crisis, it's even, it's even more important to, 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 
That is my biggest yeah. advice. Don't hoard. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is the time to heal. This is the time yeah. to help. You know, assume positive yeah. intent and and and, and, yeah, and totally. you know, lend that hand to help. So so thank you, Kelly. I appreciate you uh, making the time. A great conversation. Uh, and we'll we'll, said, we'll make sure we share your LinkedIn uh, profile with everyone and the the research to the Accenture the Accenture link. And hopefully this helps some people that are working right now with their you know, small business, nonprofit, whatever, and uh, give some tips for them to get through this. So thank you. Hey, thanks so much, Nick. I really appreciate it. Thanks for thanks for. To learn more about our movement, visit our website, fullpotentialmovement.com, or visit us on multiple social media platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube.